Hear the word of God, Joshua 8, 1 to 29. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai as, and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua arose and all the people of war uh, to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city, behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it, and it will come about when they come out against us, as at the first, that we shall flee before them. For they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing before us as at the first. Therefore, we will flee before them. Then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire. According to the commandment of the Lord, you shall do. See, I have commanded you. Joshua therefore sent them out, and they went to lie in ambush, and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people, and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near, and they came before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. And so he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. Now it happened when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people, at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city opened and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he stretched out his hand 
And they entered the city and took it and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. And so they had no power to flee this way or that way. And the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. Now when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them. So they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them. And when they had all fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword, so that it was all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he had stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as plunder for themselves according to the word of the Lord which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Friends, that is the reading of God's holy and errant word. We pray that he may bring his blessing as we look to it in this evening time. Well, that was a lot to read (laughs) and uh, a lot of repetition. One of the things when you're reading the history and some of these sections of the Old Testament, God wants to make a point, so he says it in a very brief period of time, not once, not twice, but often three times, so that it sets it firm as something in consideration of that work that he has done. Uh, I've entitled this message, If at First You Don't Succeed. And I know most of us here would know the idiom and what follows it. If you at first don't succeed, what? Try, try again. Yeah, Uh, It's a good idiom. If success uh, is gained by... Learning through trial and error, you know, there's a truth in that idiom that if you're trying to succeed at something, you, you, you may not necessarily succeed at first, but you keep going through trial and error to see that it's accomplished. Sometimes that idiom works. I, I dare to say that it's also bad advice. It's bad advice if in the repetition of trying to succeed... You continue to make the same mistakes or obstinacy takes over and you're just bound and determined. Whatever is going to happen, 
And you, you may not succeed <laughs> in that light. Uh, but, but it's something here where Israel is brought back to accomplish something that God had set before them to do, but something that they could not do because of sin. And now they're in a place where they are being called by God again to go into this city and conquer it and bring it down in the name of God, that the kingdom of God may advance through the people of Israel, through the nation of Israel in that land. You may not see it, you may not realize it from the beginning, but I want you to sort of put yourself in the place of Israel where they have already failed and it was a costly failure to come back and to try it again is not an easy thing. You have that fear of the Lord that sometimes works where we are saying it didn't work the first time and it was because of sin. What makes me think in my pride that it's going to work a second time? And I dare to say for many of us, we tend to not bother with that second time. We tend to make a different way and plan for ourselves. Israel's first attempt at taking I was hindered by the sin of Achan. But that wasn't the only sin. This chapter brings out also an awareness of another sin that was rampant through all of Israel. And that was the sin of presumption and overconfidence. Israel went after I in their own efforts. Oh, there's only 12,000. We only need 3,000 men to take them. You don't read anything of them looking to and pleading with God, help us to understand how we may go forward. There was sin that was hidden in their camp. And when sin makes its, its foothold, it is easy for presumption and overconfidence to take over the whole. Sin always has that effect of shifting our faith away from God to ourselves. We set our faith and our confidence in what we are going to do. And, and you can kind of look at this in the progression of Joshua. If you were to go back to chapter 6 and you see how they conquered Jericho by faith. And then you get to chapter 7 where their faith, uh, turning to themselves a bit, but also with the sin in the midst of it, sin takes over and, and their faith dries up. <laughs> They're unable to do what God has asked of them. Then you come to chapter 8 and you see God is at work to restore Israel's faith. They had lost faith. And God is the one who comes and says, Now don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Take all the army and go. I'm with you in this. You repented. You, you have been restored in my mercies. Now go and do what I've asked. And you would think Israel would learn that lesson, but as we in a couple weeks come to chapter 9, we see again, presumption takes over and faith is lost. I said that before you because, my dear friends, 
Israel's, this is, this is all a picture of, of how the Christian life and sometimes the life of the church is. It's, it's wonderful to see Israel's second attempt here, wrapped in deeper humility and a renewed faith in the Lord and a renewed obedience to God's command and purposes. But again, it doesn't take them long to lose that. And, and, and it mimics the Christian life, the church of Christ. We're often on this same kind of roller coaster walk and path. We're always learning to trust the Lord and to understand what it means to trust the Lord with all our heart and not to lean upon our own understanding. And you know, that is one, I think, one of the hardest lessons that Christians and the church have to learn. Do we, do we trust in the Lord with all our hearts? Are we so committing our ways to the Lord that we can see His leading? Is there presumption? Is there sin in our lives that takes over and we're unaware of its presence to the degree that we're not walking in faith, but we're walking in self-confidence? And what is the Lord at work doing to bring us back to that place where it may be the right way to walk in, but the wrong way of walking? Those are hard lessons to learn. There's nothing easy about it. We know God's will for us, and we're going to see more of that in our morning series. We know God's will for us is for us to be so sanctified where, where we in our character and life are being made more and more like Christ. But the way to that is learning to die to sin and live to righteousness. It's learning to put away sinful habits and that self-confidence and that pride and those lusts and that coveting that often find their root in our lives and learning to walk by faith and obedience to God's word, prayer, worship, and all of those regular means of grace that seem so boring to many Christians, but are the ways in which God instructs and leads our path. It's not easy. And here in chapter 8, Israel is given that second chance, if you will, by God to take over a city. And in this, we're, they're learning, and we are learning as well, to see that God is merciful. Uh, that's one of the first things that jumps out and meets us in this chapter, is the mercy of God. And as much as we can presume that mercy as Christians and as God's church, it's something that we need to take both joy and delight in, but also to, to have that, that confidence of God's mercy. A confidence that I submit to you that Israel was lacking and it takes that call of God to them to get up and get back to doing what they were supposed to be doing for His name and for His glory. We don't want to miss even Joshua, uh, Joshua's own situation before the Lord. I believe in some ways Joshua forgot the mercy of God. 
Remember back in chapter 7 when Israel failed with the 3,000 men to take hold of the city. What did Joshua do? What did Joshua say? He accused God. He said, God, you've only brought us here to fail? I thought you said we would be able to take these cities in the power and strength of the Lord. You told me to have courage. God, how can I have courage if you've broken covenant with us? Joshua is the one who needs to hear these words. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. It wasn't necessarily Achan's sin at that time that had robbed him of that courage and strength of the Lord. As much as presumption. We presume God's mercy. You pres- dear, dear congregation, you presume God's mercy far more than you realize. The manners in which we conduct ourselves, the manners in which worship of God or that time of devotion and prayer with God is exempted for something else. In those times in which we know we have wronged someone and we're wrestling in our minds, how do we go and reconcile with them and how do we seek God's forgiveness? And you know in those times when you're fighting through it, you just think, well, I I hope time will take care of it. We've all been there, haven't we? Because repentance is hard. And repentance is often something that takes that mighty work of the Spirit to bring us to that place, both where we are repenting before God of our presumption of His mercies and seeking His forgiveness and His cleansing, but also rising up from that repentance, believing that God has forgiven us, not wallowing in it or not allowing it to rob us of any courage or strength in the Lord. To go forward. Do you believe God forgives you. Of your sins. That's a hard thing. To grab hold of. Especially if you're sitting there. And you're thinking. What about this sin that keeps haunting. My thoughts. What about that sin where. I haven't yet gone to that person. That I offended. To ask for forgiveness. And it weighs on us. But it often weighs on us in a wrong way where we neglect the mercy of God and where we do not move forward in our obedience and faithfulness to Him. You see what Achan's sin had done. It it had come into the camp. It had infected the whole of the camp. Uh, He tried like Adam to cover it. But it wasn't just, as I say, Achan's sin. The presumption And overconfidence of the camp also led them away from seeking God. That evil interrupted divine fellowship. And it it withdrew from Israel God's divine blessing. And it quite simply, as Paul would state in Ephesians 4, it grieved the spirit. (laughs) Now you're in that state. How do you recover from it? How do you rise up to walk in faithfulness to the Lord? Let me say, it takes a great work of humility and repentance to know that the mercy of God has met me and I am clean in the Lord. 
That is a work of God's grace. And that's what you see in these words. God coming to Joshua and saying, Do not fear. Isn't it interesting? Those are the same words that Jesus also said to his disciples. Right after he said to them, All of you are going to flee from me. All of you are going to deny me. You're going to leave me alone. You're going to abandon me. You're not going to uphold your faith in me. Don't let your heart be troubled. (laughs) Those are the next words. (laughs) The Lord knows us. The struggles that we have in this way. And here we're meeting Joshua and Israel after they have dealt with Achan. And there is great fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord that says, Wow, if we go forward and make another mistake, God's lightning bolt is going to come down and strike us. We better not go forward. It, 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 It was an improper fear that didn't recognize the mercies of God that were ready to build them up again. And so it is the Lord who moves at this time to revive the hearts of Joshua and Israel. God's mercy at work. And and we, we need to see that. We need to see God's mercy is at work. Where sin would breed an improper fear. Even when forgiveness is extended... At times the shame, the anxiety, the misery of sin breeds that improper fear where we give up. And it takes the Lord to come in, in His mercies, to renew our courage again. And that's what the Lord is doing here with both Joshua and Israel. Courage motivated by faith in the mercy of God. Courage to walk by faith in the Lord who is with them. My friends, that takes, that takes the, the eye of the soul to be focused on Christ. And at that, at that particular time, not focused on our sin, but on the one who has said, I have forgiven you. You are clean. That assurance is so essential to our life and walk in faith in the sense of of knowing that God has cleansed us from our sins and reconciled and renewed that presence and fellowship with him. And here we see the Lord doing that with Joshua, bringing Joshua back to his divine purposes, renewing his promises to give them the land And if you have truly and sincerely repented of past sins, if you have truly looked to the Lord and understanding His power to to forgive, to cleanse you from your unrighteousness, true repentance is resting in that forgiveness of the Lord. And true repentance is... In that manner is purpose to bring about a revival in the heart where we trust God and we walk in faith and confidence of Him. And friends, I submit to you, that's how God's mercy works. To revive your heart. If you find yourself 
still wallowing in sins that you have asked for forgiveness and perhaps asked for forgiveness many times. Either your repentance isn't sincere or your faith is not looking to the Lord who has promised to cleanse you. True repentance is, is faith in action. Know God's mercies. Know God's promise. Hear these words. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. He has cleansed you from your sin. That's the assurance we have. The second thing we see within this chapter as we look at Israel's experience in, in conquering I is that God is faithful. God is always and ever faithful to His promises. Look at how the Lord comes to renew His promises in verse 1, in verse 7, in verse 18. Again, three times God speaks these words. And through Joshua, they're spoken to Israel. Verse 1, See, I have given into your hand the king of I, and his people, his city, and his land. Verse 7, there it is again. The Lord, uh, then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And then down to verse 18. Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. Here God comes again, not simply to to revive his mercy and that assurance in the hearts of his people, but to revive in their souls the knowledge of his promises. Again, here is repentance at work, remembering God and what he has has promised to us in the Lord. Sin had its moment. Sin had its way. Sin had brought death. Sin needed to be dealt with. Sin changed Israel. Sin will always change us. It always have an effect upon our lives. But repentance changes us too. It renews us in the Lord. And it reminds us again of the God who is unchanging. You think about the promises God has made to you in the Lord. Through the mercies of God, you have life. God remains unchanging in His purposes and promises to His people. Praise God. (laughs) The city was theirs. And and I think this is an important thing to, to note here. As God is calling Israel to completely destroy the city of Ai. How we can see that true repentance is at work here, is that Israel is to go forward, not out of vengeance or bloodthirsty rage. That would have been very easy, wouldn't it? We saw whole family wiped out. We saw 36 other families impacted. We see a boastful city. Let's give them their due. You don't hear that, do you? Because the Lord is commanding them. And that they are to act in accordance to the justice of God. God's purpose is for His divine kingdom to come and to depose the unrighteous kingdom of men. And God wants them to destroy this city in a way 
that would exalt his justice and the glory of his son. Now, we don't always see that here. But my friends, one of the things to always understand, Joshua himself is a type of Christ. His very name is the name Jesus bore in his birth and in his earthly life. Uh, we say Jesus, but back then everyone in Israel would have called him Yeshua, Joshua. That's what Joshua would have been called. And it means the Lord saves. God saves. You will give him the name Jesus. You will give him the name Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. And even here, as God is is calling Israel to a specific work in, in conquering this city and in destroying all its inhabitants and dealing with the king as they do. My friends, let's not lose sight that this is also a picture of the cross, a picture of the work of Jesus for his people in delivering them. You see it all along. By an outstretched arm, Joshua commands the troops. Verse 18, verse 19, verse 26. That outstretched arm of Yeshua. The Lord accomplished his victory over the wicked city of Ai. By hanging the king on the tree in verse 29. The curse against I was satisfied. I'm leading us somewhere with this. The stones that covered the king at the gate of the city. The curse itself was buried and became a memorial before Israel of God's hatred against sin but also of the way in which a people are redeemed from sin and its curse. That sin must be dealt with. The wickedness of men and the wickedness of nations must be dealt with, and it must be dealt with according to God's justice. And in all of these ways, you see that picture of the cross being set before Israel and being set before us arm of the Lord who comes to deliver his people. The king who is crucified on a tree. The stone that covered him for three days. God is dealing with the sinfulness of men and of this world in a just and holy way. And through these works, God's own people are not only delivered, but they're established by Him in His kingdom. God wants His people to understand how, how, he, how He is dealing with sin so that they will recognize that He alone is the King of His people. Always it's through the cross. I'm not over-allegorizing. These are lessons that Israel experienced and struggled to learn and to see how God was in Christ uh, showing forth the glory of his kingdom even in these Old Testament times. 
And why I, I'm bold to set this before you is because as it brings us to the third point, God was bringing about His justice upon I so that He could be gracious to Israel. And isn't that the case with the cross? God brought about His justice that we deserved uh, against His Son so that His grace and His favor and His loving kindness could flow to His people so that He could be the God who is just and the justifier of all He saves. And, and we see that truth unfolding here in the destruction of I. God is merciful God is faithful, but God is gracious. And I, I want you just to turn for a moment back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. And, and to realize that Deuteronomy was written probably only about a year and a half before this time period in Joshua 8. Moses wrote that just before he died. And you get to Deuteronomy 9 and begin at verse 3 with me. Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy the nations of Canaan. He will destroy and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. But here's, here's the message to Israel. Do not think in your heart. After the Lord your God has cast them out before you saying, Because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Because, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out be from before you. That he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stiff necked people. <laughs> How encouraging is that? <laughs> Friends, that is behind God's work through Israel to bring about the downfall of these nations. Uh, an amazing grace toward a stiff-necked people. Underlying all of the Lord's actions towards Israel, even here in Joshua 8, is His graciousness. Because the Lord knows Israel's inclination to sin. The Lord knows the proclivity of Israel to self-will. <laughs> and we're going to see that again in the very next chapter. <laughs> the Lord also knows the wickedness of this world. He deals with it every day. And He deals with it realizing that Israel is a stiff-necked people. Why does God continue with such a people? You ever ask that so that question of yourself? Why does God continue with me as sinner? Because in divine grace, his desire is to give you his people a kingdom 
you do not deserve, a land that is not your own, and the milk and the honey of the land that you have not labored for. God has said to Israel from here on out as they destroy the cities and the people of the nations that they are overtaken, that all of the spoil is for them to plunder. Verse 2, verse 27. He'd already taken the first fruits of Jericho and now he wants Israel to, to enjoy the overflow out of his kindness. I'm giving you this. It comes with responsibility. Seek me. Seek me with all your heart and I will give you the nations of this world. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things you need to live your life in this world. I will give you. Do you believe those promises? I dare to say we don't. We may confess them. We may pray them. The efforts that we give in our lives over to things of this world often show that we're not as confident in God being gracious to us as we are in our own abilities. You know, in Luke 12, Jesus spoke those words at different times. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. But I, I bring you to Luke 12, 31 and 32 because do you know what the next verse is? I, I, to me, it's, I think it's one of the most amazing verses of the New Testament. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what God is doing for Israel. He's giving them His kingdom. He's giving them a kingdom that they have not earned or deserved, a kingdom that they could never work for to earn and deserve, a kingdom of abounding spiritual blessings in the Lord Jesus that they did not labor for. And he does this out of his mere good pleasure. That's what we stand in. That's what Israel is being taught to stand in. God is merciful. God is faithful. But Israel, know how gracious I am being to you, a stiff-necked people. I'm doing this because I love you. <laughs> My friends, for us today, God's grace is to us sealed by the blood of Christ. It can be sealed by nothing greater but in sealing to us his grace through the blood of Christ, what does he say? Every spiritual blessing of my storehouse is yours. You realize what you have. That is the end of God's grace to give you his kingdom. Seek it. Make it the first thing in your thoughts each day. Not my kingdom, not my will, your kingdom, your will, let it be done.